This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. This week, it's a special week. Mark and I are on vacation. We are not, in fact, in PW's offices. We're traveling around. And so we've queued up some of our greatest hits for you from our archives, some interviews with authors whose books remain timely and fascinating. So we'll talk to you soon. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Nikki Shaw on the line. Her new book is Everfair. Hi, Nisi. So glad you could join us. I'm so glad to be here. So Everfair is your first novel. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Well, it is basically about a country called Everfair. Uh, Not about the people, but about the country. And it starts off with a bunch of British socialists, uh, and African-American missionaries buying land from Leopold, who personally owned, according to him, parts of the African continent. They buy the land, they set up this utopian socialist community, and things go from there. So in our starred review of the book, we said that uh, you take readers to this alternate earth where the inhumane history of the Belgian Congo is brilliantly rewritten when Africa's indigenous populations learn about steam power. So tell us how you are playing with the steampunk aesthetic, the steampunk genre in this book. Well, I actually didn't write that, and I have to say that there's a little bit more going on than steam technology. Uh, There's some biotechnology going on. With the steampunk aesthetic, I I cheated a little bit, and in that part of Africa, there were natural uh, nuclear reactors in the ground, and I just made them last maybe a million years longer than they normally did. So we use those as um, the way that you can actually have steam power. Uh, You have nuclear-fueled generators running steam. And so uh, then we have dirigibles, but the dirigibles are called air canoes, and their balloons are made out of rubberized bark cloth. And there are guns that fire blades that were uh, throwing, based on the throwing blades of the indigenous region. Um, There's poisoned blades in these shanguns, they're called, and so on and so forth. So that sounds incredibly exciting. Uh, Did you have a ton of fun writing this book? It sounds like it was a lot of fun. It was so much fun. It was so much fun flying in the face of certain conventions and um, making people survive and survive and thrive 
that in our timeline, actually millions were killed. So in this one, they are not killed and they're on top. So tell us more about your your African-American protagonist, Thomas Jefferson Wilson. Thomas Jefferson Wilson is based on a character, a historical figure that I learned about when I read King Leopold's Ghost, which is an awesome book that everyone should read about what actually happened in the Congo under King Leopold's reign. Uh, Thomas Jefferson Wilson is very closely modeled on George Washington Williams, who was a Civil War veteran and a congressman and a minister, and he traveled to the Congo during the time that it was the so-called free state under Leopold and was horrified by what he saw, wrote a famous open letter to King Leopold, and then mysteriously died. So in my version, he doesn't die. He lives to the ripe old age of 80, has several wives, um, sets fashions, and um, converts to paganism. So how how does Thomas uh, Jefferson Wilson, how did he end up in the Belgian Congo? You know, there were a lot of people who were looking toward the African continent as a home for people who could not uh, face living in the United States after the horrors of slavery. So um, there was uh, Sierra Leone, uh, there was Liberia, and there were a bunch of other experiments. So that's basically how he wound up on that continent. And then... Um, Leopold put about the rumor that he was doing wonderful things and emancipating people and had this model country going. So, of course, uh, Williams was investigating this, and what he found made his blood run cold, millions of people dying from horrible treatment. So I, I just want to step back just for a moment. You know, I'm, I'm always happy when uh, Rose uh, uh, has uh, authors who write about uh, 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 steampunk on because it's something that's new to me. So if you could just describe just physically what uh, the Belgian Congo looks like at this time in the steampunk, steampunk time and what might be different. Well, it, the novel takes place over a 30-year period, so there's a lot of development going on in the steampunk aesthetic, in steampunk tools and machines. By the end, the capital of Everfair, Kisangani, uh, has clockwork swings that cross um, low streets where the rain collects. There are uh, dirigibles with um, sort of gimbaled uh, landing craft. There are elevators. There are um, steam bicycles, um, which are sort of like motorcycles, steam-driven bicycles that carry around uh, carriages and carts. They tow them. So... It is quite different. People use fans as hats. Uh, you have to read it. It's really good, and I'm really hoping that there will be a lot of cosplay, 
costumes uh, based on the different wears, wearing patterns that you have. Um, some people who are on the ground are going to be wearing less, and then some people who are spending more time up in the air where it's cooler are wearing more, and so on and so forth. I love the idea of uh, cosplay for this because uh, we all know there's a there's a dearth of cosplay opportunities for people of color, and so um, it's wonderful to have uh, an entire book uh, set in this section of Africa with quite a mingling of people uh, and a lot of opportunities on that front, on the on the visual front and on the representation front. Yes. Um... One of the things that I found out when I was doing research for the book was that the people uh, who were indigenous to this area uh, were famed across the continent for their metalwork. So I really didn't have to stretch very far to have them making, you know, throwing knives and uh, clockwork-driven prosthetic arms and that sort of thing. It was already there, just waiting to be developed. Mm. So, uh, could you tell a little bit? Tell us a little bit about the uh, the Great Fabian Society. Uh, the Fabians were a gradualist socialist movement that really existed in 19th century Britain. Uh, some of the people that I really admire were founders, including George Bernard Shaw, H. G. Wells, and a children's author that I just adore E. Nesbitt, Edith Nesbitt. She and her husband, Hubert Bland, were founders of the Fabian Society. And they did not want violent confrontations, but they did want a socialist utopia, which they thought they could get by just being nice to people a lot. Wait, wait, Edith Nesbitt, the children's book author? Yes, she was a Fabian wow. socialist. Yes, and. <laughs> I had no idea. That's uh, I'm going to go and try and reconcile that with her books now because I don't remember reading her children's books and thinking these have secret socialist messages in them. Well, they are there, but again, the Fabians were gradualists. They were not all in your face. But if you look uh, particularly at The Enchanted Castle by Nesbitt, she uh, has her typical middle-class protagonist, but she also has one of the protagonists as the daughter of the castle's housekeeper, which was fairly revolutionary for the time. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, that's that's amazing. And I'm just, I'm going to go reread all those books now, but I'm getting off us off track. I'm sorry. That just, uh, that, that grabbed me. So how do you integrate, uh, the, the Fabian society into your book? Um, they're, they're the ones going off and trying to really make that utopia happen in the Congo. Yes. Uh, again, in our timeline, what really happened was they got an anonymous donation of a lot of money and they used that to set up the London School of Economics. So all I did was say, well, you know, maybe they use that money to buy some land from Leopold. And Leopold was only in it for the money. So I can imagine him accepting the money and saying, sure, I'll do this rather than going through the whole arduous process of forcing people to harvest rubber for me. Just give me the money. Uh, 
in my version, Leopold thinks that he's being very canny because he sells a piece of land that is landlocked. There's no access to the ocean, so no trade routes. But of course, there are dirigibles. Hello, air canoes. So these can sail and uh, carry goods and do trade with Europe and with the rest of Africa and the Middle East without access to waterways. Oh, that's pretty fascinating. <laughs> so uh, tell us about the relationship between King Leopold and um, uh, um, uh, Thomas Jefferson Wilson. And how do they come to this uh, agreement where they're, where they're you know, kind of creating Everfair? Uh, actually, um, it was, um, in my version, the initial overtures were made by the Fabian Socialists, and then the Fabian Socialists uh, were in contact with Wilson, who then brought in several other um, evangelists and missionaries. Uh, what happens is that Jackie Owen, who's modeled a bit on H.G. Wells and a bit on George Bernard Shaw, goes to a speech that Williams slash Wilson gives and is moved by what he sees as a possibility. Um, I won't give everything away there, but that is mm. basically how it works. And then Hubert Bland is the contact. Um, Nesbitt's husband is, is the contact with Leopold in this case. And who are some of the other significant characters? You haven't talked so much about women yet, but I'm sure there are plenty of them playing significant roles. Oh, yes. Um, I couldn't model all my characters on historical figures because uh, so much of the Congo's history has been erased. But arguably the main character is Lisette Tutumier, who is based on the French author mixed-race author Colette, who's one of my mm. idols again. So Lisette Toutonnier is modeled on Colette. Um, Josina, the favorite of King Mwenda. King Mwenda essentially ruled the land that, uh, that Leopold claimed as his own. Um, and his favorite queen, Josina, is uh, modeled on Maria Fonseca, who was also mixed race, um, the granddaughter of a Portuguese trader. Uh, let's wow. see, who else? Well, um, Nesbitt herself is, um, in, in my version, I, I talk a, a lot about uh, Daisy, who is the country's poet was very much involved in politics and also in a rather torrid triangle, love triangle between the George Bernard Shaw, H.G. Wells figure and Lisette. And yeah, her husband is involved too. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. 
every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Nisi Shaw, the author of Everfair, who's giving us some amazing insight into how she drew on history to develop her alternate history of utopian socialists in the Belgian Congo. And uh, how did you envision your setting changing over the decades? You said that it, um, this takes place over about 30 years. So it starts in the Victorian era and then um, heads all the way into World War I. Well, one of the things that happens is that um, people find each other um, helpful and not so helpful. Uh, there are several wars, and at, at the end, the, uh, the people find a way to resolve their differences without war, which I really hope that that happens with a lot of other people. Um, so they start out um, as very separate groups. They, uh, there are the um, U- utopian settlers, the uh, African Americans and the Europeans and British, and then there are the indigenes. So there are basically three groups, and then um, there's a fourth group that I found out about as I was doing research. Did you know there's a strong Chinese cultural influence in that part of the world? I did did not not. know. No, no. Uh, What happened was that Leopold hired a bunch of Chinese railroad workers, people who actually built a railroad. Um, He wanted them to build a railroad between um, the part of his territory that was adjacent to the ocean and then the part of the Congo River that was navigable. So he hired a bunch of Chinese people, and at one point they j- just basically said to each other, you know, this is really no good. I'm not going to have anything more to do with this. Which way is east? Oh, that way? Okay, let's go. And they all dropped their tools, and they headed off into the bush. And they did not make it back to China, but they did um, mingle with the uh, Congolese indigenous people there and left a great legacy of Chinese culture. So so those people are there, too, and there are all these disparate groups at the beginning. Um, they become more mingled over the course of fighting off Leopold and also um, become more mingled as they fight against, um, so they take the side of the Germans in World War One, But then, mm. at a certain point, King Wenda says, um, you know what, you guys can go now. <laughs> and that's when there's the outbreak of a third sort of civil war, which is, as I say, resolved in a non-military manner. So there's, there's that sort of progression uh, from quite disparate to not so disparate, but still tired of each other groups. Well, I, I want to ask, this is all so fascinating and how you brought in history into, I mean, how many, all these historic elements into your, into your novel. How did you come up with the, with, with the idea for this book? I mean, what, what was that first kernel and then how'd you develop it? Well, the first kernel was, um, I don't know. I swear I wasn't drunk. <laughs> but I was, 
I was on a panel at uh, World Fantasy in 2009, it must have been, and I was trying to figure out what I hated about steampunk because I obviously hated it, and yet I didn't know, I hadn't analyzed why. Um, and what I came up with was that it, it was far too supportive of imperialism. So I proclaimed in front of a room full of hundreds of people that I was going to address this by writing a novel that was set in the heart of the, one of the worst colonialist and imperialist disasters in history. Uh, just because it was so nasty, I wanted to get into it. Cool. And, um, the only, <laughs> then I had to do it, right? The only thing that I could think of that would work was, um, I had read a little bit about Fordlandia, which was, uh, not utopian, a commercial, uh, community set up in Brazil, I believe it was, somewhere in South America. Um, to raise rubber. Henry Ford, the automaker, bought a bunch of land and said, oh, we're going to have a community that makes, that raises rubber trees. I thought that, you know, because I knew about the British Fabian socialists, that maybe they could do it and do it for social justice reasons. Wow. Uh that's I mean it's really it's really fascinating. How what was your process for writing the book? And and it's interesting to me to say that how much you you dislike uh, uh, steampunk, but uh, but it was exactly that that set you on this on this course. Um, what what was the writing process like? Oh, it was feverish. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it took six years. Um, it was very immersive. I, I spent a lot of time poring over maps and listening to music and um, looking at photographs um, as I was writing. I'm the kind of person who writes while they research. So I didn't, you know, say, I will research this week and then I will write next week. No, it was minute to minute. Um, when I write, I, I pray that I get things right. Um, I try to get as many sensory cues going that will immerse me in that in that environment that I'm trying to depict as as possible. I'm not sure uh, what else to tell you. Um, there was someone that I that I invited to my one of the places that I wrote a retreat, and she looked at my setup at the photos that I'd laid out and the map and the incense and the candles. And she said, you have a very developed writing process, which I thought was very um, diplomatic of her. <laughs> well, you, Rose and I have interviewed many people. We've asked the question, especially with uh, books of history or, or novels that have obviously you know, needed, you know, required uh, uh, research. And most, People say that uh, they do the research first and then the writing. And I think you're the first, unless I'm mistaken, who said that you write it, uh, you research as you write. So, so therefore, you have a character who's doing something, uh, uh, such as uh, and uh, maybe Leopold, or you have an action. And you're like, wait a minute, I should research that just to see 
what was the next step? I would sort of know what they're, where they were headed, but not what the road felt like under their feet, if you see what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I did have some moments where, like, with, uh, discovering about the Macau railway builders, that, that changed the entire course of the book. Um, it added a, a couple of major characters. But um, generally, it was just like, well, are there street lights in Baltimore? And um, what does what does rubber look like before it's uh, vulcanized? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Got it. So you also co-wrote a book called Writing the Other, um, which is about how to write about characters whose backgrounds are different from the author's background, uh, which has become this very important and well-known work in the industry. Uh, did you expect that when you wrote that with Cynthia Ward? I certainly did not. I did not. I was uh, constantly, I'm still uh, amazed by the fact that people take it seriously and, you know, I, I understand that it's, um, the practical approach of having people do exercises is novel one that people would much rather opinionate and bloviate about stuff, but I didn't expect it to take off like that. No. <laughs> and how has that, um, shaped your career. I'm actually surprised that it's taken you this long to write a novel. And I was wondering if part of that is because you've been caught up in being or being seen as an educator. No, actually, I have written three other novels. Three other novels. This is just the first one to get published. Ah. Um, And I had actually finished all three novels before I began this one. Uh, so why weren't they published earlier? Well, maybe there's a little weird, you know, <laughs> uh, there's a, a middle years one called speculation. There's a YA one called La Verde and there's, uh, an adult one called the blazing world. Yeah. Maybe I do stuff in novels that you can only get away with in short stories. Sure. Tell a little bit about, I I know Rose is familiar with writing the other, but could you tell us a little bit about that book? So uh, a little more about writing the other. Uh, The premise is that there are two things that need to happen to increase representation in the field. One is uh, the very important part of getting more marginalized voices to speak for themselves. And that is not what writing the other is about. Writing the other is about the second half of that issue, which is that we want to have representation no matter whose voice is doing the speaking. So writing the other uh, is expressly about how to create characters whose demographics differ from your own in ways that this culture deems significant. For instance, uh, if you're a black uh, woman uh, of 60 years old, uh, bisexual, cis, such as myself, how do you write about someone who is a teenager, Chinese, male, heterosexual, um, which is 
one of the characters in Everfair, Tink. So um, there, there are, are actual techniques that you can use to make that possible and to make it better. And that's what writing the other is about. So were you using those techniques uh, sort of on yourself or with yourself uh, as you were working on Everfair? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I was, of course, terrified the whole time I was writing just about everybody but Lisette. Uh, Lisette is the closest to me demographically, um, although not always age-wise, but by the end of the book, she is pretty close. Um, so, yeah, all of all of the time I was uh, using those techniques and hoping that they would help. <laughs> So are you working on any projects now? Oh, so many. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One thing that I'm working on actually is um, I finished one short story and I'm about to start another short story that are sort of working as pilot episodes for another novel set uh, in the world of Everfair, basically a sequel. Uh, The first one actually has sold to an, uh, an anthology called Sun Vault. The first one is called The Colors of Money, and it takes place on Zanzibar, and um, there are a couple of characters there that were also in Everfair, and it takes place about three months after Everfair closes. And the next one um, that I'll be starting on tomorrow I have no title for it yet, but I know that it takes place in Alexandria and that it again involves a brother-sister pair of characters that were part of Everfair. Well, I think our listeners are going to be very excited to know that you're working on a sequel because I've heard nothing but good buzz about this book, including our starred review. There's been some really nice things said about this book. I'm happy about that. My mom likes it. Oh, well, that's the most important thing. (laughs) <laughs> We've been talking with Nisi Shaw, and you can find her book, Ever Fair, in stores right now. Nisi, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're so welcome, Rose. I was very happy to do this. I'm glad that it worked out. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Donna Freitas, author of The Happiness Effect, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Lodro Rinsler on the line. His new book is Love Hurts. Hi, Lodro. I'm so glad you could join us. Thanks for having me. So tell us, why does love hurt, and what do we do when we're confronted with love that hurts? Well, it's interesting. You know, this book came out of a period of time that I spent, and this is probably the most bizarre writing story that you might have heard. I apologize in advance. But I wrote this book in the storefront window of this iconic story here called um, ABC Carpet and Home. And I met one-on-one with all of these people. And I thought, oh, it's going to be a book about love and romantic love and people breaking up and all these things. But I invited people, just complete strangers, to meet with me one-on-one and said, what is your experience of heartbreak? And I just held the space for them to tell their stories. And it was everything. It was, I gave my kid up for adoption so many years ago, and I don't know what happened to them, and that's heartbreaking. It was, I fell in love with my sponsor, and I relapsed. 
and mm. that was heartbreaking. It's I look exactly like that victim of police brutality, exactly like her, and that's heartbreaking. And it just became vaster and vaster. And so this book is really it, it became more about how, all the different ways that we offer our hearts, all the ways that we offer love, but then of course the heartbreak that comes with our expectations not being met, either by society, by an individual, or even by ourselves. So we quote you in our Star Review uh, uh, of the book saying, the only way we can get through all our heartbreak is to sit in the middle of that terrible, devastating, world-changing experience. Uh, tell us about that idea. The terrible, world-changing experience? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and sitting through it, actual, yeah. actually. Well, okay, so obviously, you know, the subtitle here is Buddhist Advice for the Heartbroken. So the, the reveal, of course, is that I'm a meditation teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been teaching meditation for about 15 years. I have a studio in Greenwich Village called Mindful MNDFL, and we're actually expanding to yeah, Upper East Side and Williamsburg, so there's going to be a couple of us around the city. But the idea here is that we can learn to literally sit with our experience, to actually bring the really intense emotions that surround our heartbreak to the meditation seat and actually learn that we can accommodate anything, essentially, that our hearts are actually very resilient. They bounce back much better and much quicker than we would ever give them credit for that even when something does feel like the ground's dropped out from under us or we feel broken, that we do have the capacity to heal and come back stronger if we're willing to actually look at our experience, if we're willing to stay with it as opposed to run away from it, tamp it down, distract ourselves with some unhealthy habits, etc. So um, we're seeing a lot of conversation right now in the world about feelings, uh, about what kinds of feelings are appropriate, about who gets to have feelings, about, um, you know, the the idea of whether, you know, for example, men should express their feelings or push them down, uh, about uh, whether hurt feelings are something to be indulged or something to be dismissed. How do you how do you work with these really big feelings at a time when when no one even knows what to do with feelings or 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 what they are? Yeah, I mean that is I think you sort of nailed it. My teacher Sankyang Mipam Rinpoche once said that great confusion and suffering exists because humanity cannot simply be in other words, like we're not even touched with how we're feeling, how we actually are. And as a result, we act out in confusion, confusing ways. We act out in ways that are harmful to ourselves or others. When I would actually sit down with these people one-on-one and I would say, you know, how do you take care of yourself in the midst of heartbreak? Mm. The first thing that people would say is the thing that they know that they shouldn't do but do anyway. Well, I reach for the junk food and I overeat. I reach for the bottle and I drink too much. I get on Tinder and I hook up with someone. Anything to sort of cover over that actual ability to feel. So here I'm sort of proposing a pretty different approach that there's – the way the book is structured is a bazillion different chapters that are very short and they're structured around however you're actually feeling. So if you're feeling angry, there's literally a chapter that says if you feel angry and some advice for that. If you're feeling depressed – Go to the chapter that says, if you feel depressed. It's a little bit like choose your own adventure. If you remember those books from when you were a kid. Mm -hmm. So you can sort of just, oh, I literally got an email. The book came out two days ago. And last night, I I actually consider the book now a success because I got this email. Someone said, hey, I picked up your book today. I saw that there was a chapter that said, if you feel like you will never love again. And I flipped to it and I actually totally connected. I don't feel so alone. Thank you. And yeah. that's already huge for me. I mean, that's that in my mind, you know, 
screw rankings and sales and all that. Like that's that's it. You know, that someone actually said, Oh, you get what I'm going through because you've gone through it. There's lots of teachings around this. This is actually helpful. And you also have one uh, uh, if you feel like you might need a good kick in the pants. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, there's different – some of this is sort of pacifying energy of like, hey, you're going to be okay. And some of this is, you know, a little bit of like get out of bed and have some right. food. Yeah. I, I feel like it might be a mistake down the road. The, the whole section around like if you feel like you can't eat is a good pep talk around that. But then I invite you to like literally take a picture of what you are eating to prove to me that you did it and then email it to me. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I'm just going to have all these strangers' foods show up in my inbox. That's okay. It's the risk I take as a writer, I suppose. That's what I signed on for. But even that is is that moment of real human connection. I'm, you know, writing a book and sending the book out into the world is not the same as sitting in a shop window, uh, which was that very sort of simultaneously public and intimate experience. I mean, what, what was that even like to be kind of glassed in and yet connecting with people in this really personal way. Yeah, it, it was a bizarre writer's retreat, I'll tell you. Mm. Um, I knew that it wouldn't actually do for me to remove myself from people and go right in the woods somewhere. It wouldn't have been the same book. I needed to actually have it be more than my personal experience of heartbreak in order for it to be a more universal book. And um, it did feel a little bit at times like being a monkey in a cage because people would walk by and sort of knock on the window and say, what are you doing in there? I'm saying, I'm trying to write. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I would spend the afternoons and evenings in that window. And it, it sort of, there were like people that come by regularly and we'd get in the habit of waving. Um, but in the mornings, it was, this, as you said, very intimate time where I would meet one-on-one -on -one with people, um, strangers from all walks of life. And they would come in, and we'd literally have 20 minutes together. I'd sort of hold the space for them, and we wouldn't get through all of my questions. I only had four. But often we would only get through one or two. And the first question was always, what is your experience of heartbreak? And again, wide variety of experiences. Um, really sort of shocking. And people would actually come in and say, I thought I was going to talk about my most recent breakup, but it turns out I'm still really upset about my father dying. Mm. That's my experience of heartbreak today. And they would talk about that. Um, and then the second question, when they were done, I would say, how do you feel right now? And the interesting thing is having actually created some space where they could articulate how they are feeling, to go back to what you were saying before, Rose, uh, they felt something shift. Because they were heard and understood, something shifted within them that it felt looser or not as solid and permanent as it might have felt before. Question three was, how do you take care of yourself? And that's actually like there's a whole section of the book about just all of the things I learned from people about how to take care of yourself. And then four, is there something you could do today to take care of yourself? In other words, you know, look me in the eyes and tell me you're going to do it. Um, so they would leave that situation and go engage in exercise or seeing a friend or taking a long walk and actually taking care of themselves having done that cathartic experience. Is this an exercise that you think that um, people can – recreate in some small way in their own lives uh and what what would it be like if we all sat down with a friend and said you know how are you how are you feeling what's what's your heartbreak what can you do to take care of yourself um yes is the short form i was just thinking about the friend aspect because i think some part of it was the fact that the, i was a complete stranger to these people mm. Right, And so they knew I, my job wasn't there to judge them or to tell them that they're bullshitting and they should like get over them. Like, no, I just hold the space. 
um, which I think is somehow more difficult with, with close friends because they sort of might have that judgment lingering in the back of their mind. Right. Um, so I think, yes, you could do it with a friend. I also think you could just do it as a journaling exercise mm-hmm. um, to put some time aside and just actually reflect on each question. I think you could even, if you hate journaling, you could just literally contemplate these questions and voice your truth. Just actually speaking it out loud is helpful. So there's a couple ways to do it, and I include those in the book as well. So I have two questions. First of all, how did you get this started at ABC Carpet? I, I mean, what was the... Like, why did they ever let anyone ever do this? <laughs> yeah, well, but also how, the, how did the idea come to you to do it? How did you choose ABC Carpet? I mean, it's a great location. Um, and then how did they <laughs> let you do it? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, so I'll, I'll sort of work my way backwards to the inspiration for this whole thing. But my last book was called How to Love Yourself and Sometimes Other People. And we did the launch party at ABC Carpet and Home that generously hosted us. And it was at that point where I had finished the, you know, the last section of that book was on heartbreak. And I was like, oh, I could just keep going with this. So I did. And um, that became the heartbreak book eventually. But I really felt so compelled after having this launch I really went straight from the book launch of How to Love Yourself and Sometimes Other People into the window. So I approached them that week and said, hey, while we're working together, what do you think about this crazy idea? And for whatever, I honestly don't know why they signed on. I think it was really so <laughs> generous of them. Um, I had to give credit where it's due. They, they were really wonderful to host me. Uh, but they, I think halfway through, they were like, oh, you're still here? <laughs> you're, you're still coming in every morning and doing this? Okay. Um, so they're, they're really lovely. But the inspiration for the book itself, I mean, not to get too personal, but it, it was a really, I mean, we all have stories of heartbreak, and I think some might feel more pivotal than others. Mine really is 2012. So there's this period of time in 2012 where, for me, the bottom really just sort of dropped out. It was about eight weeks, starting with me losing my job. Uh, which, of course, is always a blow to the ego, but it also threw me into complete financial instability. I'd been with this company for seven years. The whole department was eliminated. Mm. Very shocking. So I was a little heartbroken, a little groundless at that point. And then my fiancé, this person who I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life with, woke up one day and realized that this was not what she wanted to do. And she moved overseas to London. And um, that was shocking as well and completely heartbreaking. But the straw that really broke the camel's back was the fact that uh, it was July 13th, 2012. One of my best friends from college died unexpectedly from heart failure mm. um, at the age of 29. So he was young. He was healthy. There's no physical reason for him to have done that. But, I mean, that's basically what happens. They say, oh, his heart stopped working. So he died from heart failure, and I was devastated. And I, that was really it for me. The bottom was had dropped out. I was no longer taking care of myself. I was spending most of my time in bed. I wasn't eating well. After a lifetime of practicing meditation, at that point, I'd already been teaching meditation for 10 years. I couldn't even get to the cushion. I couldn't sit. I couldn't meditate. I, could, I wasn't exercising. None of it. But I had this great community of friends around me that were helping to take care of me even as I couldn't take care of myself. And they got me into therapy and that got me back onto the meditation cushion that got me to taking better care of myself and eating better and exercising and eventually getting good sleep and coming back to the point where i'm not speaking at to you guys at this point from a point of open wounds but actually from a place of scars um 
I would say the difference here being, you know, I carry that pain with me. It's not all of who I am. At that point, it, was, it felt like that was all of who I am. And I think there's many people out there who are carrying heartbreak, and that's sort of the defining trait for them. And, uh, you know, I think I realized during that time that I was not alone in experiencing heartbreak. It's such an isolating emotional experience, but coming off the other end of that and sort of being back at full fighting weight in the last couple of years, I said, oh, you know, this is an important topic. I don't see people talking about it in an open way. If I could open up a dialogue and make people feel not so alone, that would be huge. So tell us about some of the advice that you include in your book, um, maybe for people who are feeling the way that that you were feeling, that they couldn't sleep, they couldn't eat, they couldn't do the things that they knew would feel good because the whole concept of feeling good seemed inaccessible. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting thing with heartbreak that it doesn't feel like it will ever end. And this is sort of like the good news about our emotional states, that even this difficult, gut-wrenching, totally depressing, frustrating experience is impermanent too. Like it's going to change and shift. And that was my experience. And I, I feel like that's some of the very few pieces of really good news I can offer in the book. Not that this is actually a very downer book. I think that does have a relatively good sense of humor considering the topic, but between the various types of Buddhist advice, meditation practices that are in there, I'm hoping that people can get to that point where they realize that even if they're in the bottom of the well now, there is a way to get out of it. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Lodro Rinsler, author of Love Hurts. Um, so you're the author of half a dozen books now. Uh, the, I think my favorite title is The Buddha Walks Into a Bar. How does writing fit into your Buddhist practice, your, your meditative practice? That's an interesting one. You know, it's funny. I, it didn't actually land with me that I've written a half a dozen books until you just said that I wrote a half a dozen books. <laughs> it actually sounds like a lot now. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not the sort of person that's like, oh, I've got to write every single day. I mean, I totally admire people that do that. Um, it's not a practice for me in the same way that my meditation practice is, that I do feel like I have to show up for that every day. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, it's um, actually the more I meditate, the more I actually create some sort of mental space, the more creativity arises. The more, like, it literally feels like I'm rearranging the furniture of my mind so that I can actually, in the same way that if, if, you're the sort of writer that literally has to like spend the whole day like cleaning the house before you actually sit down and get to the computer. Uh -huh. you know, it sort of feels like that only mentally. Like I honestly feel like I have to sit and sit and sit to the point where I can actually generate the ideas of like, oh, that's exactly how I want to articulate this. And then I can sit down and write. So I do think there's a relationship there, even though my writing practice is really more intentional. It's not as, it's not an everyday thing. And, uh, you, you mentioned that this, in some ways, came out. This book came out of a, a launch event last night. You had a, another launch event for this book, but uh, a, a sort of unconventional one. Tell us, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, we had a really great experience where we um, 
shared heartbreak stories. It was, I feel, we've had like a, in past experiences, we've had a roast, which is very bizarre, mm-hmm. um, where it's a couple of well-known Buddhist teachers and public figures and, um, literally we would have people come up and, and roast each other. And, um, yeah, when you think about it, it has very little to do with the topic of, for example, the Buddha walks into the office. Um, that said, here, we realized we couldn't quite go that far, but my good friend Jeff Groh, who is in the habit of doing this, did a really skillful job of facilitating these heartbreak stories. One from uh, Buddhist teacher Ethan Nickturn, who wrote a book called The Road Home, um, which is sort of like that goofy first heartbreak and how it propelled him into the Buddhist practices. Um, we had a beautiful story, a woman named Erin Frankel who lost her husband on 9-11. Mm. The trauma really that that she carries every time that someone brings up that event um and sharon salzberg i mean really such a beautiful buddhist icon essentially uh author of many many books including loving kindness and real happiness now real love is her next one talking about her teacher one of her teachers deepa ma and how she literally was on that her deathbed from a broken heart and how meditation saved her. So really sort of a moving evening. And then I'm sort of sitting there like, I met with people in a window once. <laughs> like everyone <laughs> has their own heartbreak stories. But these, I found these to be really profound. Sitting in the window, writing these books, um, what has changed you? How do you change? Yeah, I mean, I think my understanding of heartbreak is just deeper. I think I, I didn't realize how vast and how many scenarios there were. And also just the ways that we perpetuate it. So, for example, there was a woman who met with me, and um, she told me the story that her grandmother died, which is not unexpected. We expect our grandparents to die at some point in our life. It was the fact that her grandmother died a week before her wedding. Mm. And she had so many expectations. She had picked out exactly where she was going to sit so that she could hear everyone because she was hard of hearing. She had picked out exactly what she was going to drink and what she was going to eat, who she was going to be seated next to, how she was going to introduce her to all of her friends, how she would act so sassy to certain ones. And then, of course, when she died, none of that would ever come to be. So it wasn't that her grandmother died. It's the fact that her expectations of how all of that would play out had died was really the heartbreaking thing for her. So for me, it was that moment of, oh, it's the realization that reality doesn't always meet our demands, that our expectations are so tightly wound up in our heads. And then when they, we aren't, when they aren't met, we become incredibly disappointed. And that's heartbreaking. That's sort of a universal thing, whether that's I thought we would always be together and now we're not. And that's heartbreaking because that was my expectation to I thought my father would be around to meet my grandkids and he's not. And that is heartbreaking. Right. So whatever our set expectations are. When reality steps on, it's like, nope, that's heartbreak. That's when our ego and our heart become so wounded. So it was really interesting for me to just understand that. And I think in a day-to-day practice, noticing when these expectations come, to answer your question more directly, Mark, um, and saying, oh, I totally have this expectation that we are going to do X, Y, and Z. And if I can loosen that, if my reality doesn't come to that way, then I probably will be less heartbroken. It's almost preemptive getting out of the way of heartbreak if we can sort of not hold our mind in such a fixed way. Which is a very Buddhist idea of letting go of attachment, which in this case is an attachment to an imagined future. Exactly, yes. 
So you've got an advice uh, an advice column for uh, Huffington Post. Um, what, what trends have you noticed in your advice column recently, maybe? Well, you know, I don't think it would surprise anyone that some people are feeling heartbroken around the election. Mm-hmm. Um, that there are people who feel like there is something bubbling right beneath the surface of our society, and now it's really come to the forefront of it in terms of systemic racism, hatred, classism, you name it. Um, And this is not, by the way, this is not even me saying like a particular party. I think that there's lots of things coming up on both sides of the aisle that people are saying, I don't know how to deal with these people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's just that, like literally that, like I don't know how to deal with these people. Particularly here, you know, it is at the hol- time of the holidays. Everyone's going home to see their racist uncle. What do I do with that now? You know, like it's really sort of a pretty potent time that people are feeling the societal heartbreak. In addition to um, someone over at Shambhal Publications used this term I hadn't heard it before, but I totally understand it, the turkey dump. Uh, where particularly young people who are at college um, break up with their partner before going home so that they don't have to introduce them to the parents. Oh. So it's like, <laughs> so there's that too. I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't either. Oh, That's right? awful. <laughs> awful. Oh, man. Actually, I don't want to introduce you to my grandmother, so we're over. Um, wow. Yeah, it's the real thing. So it's been really interesting to sort of get it from all angles. I mean, young, old, all of us experience heartbreak. Um, in different forms. But I've, I've had a sort of balancing experience lately of a lot of my friends who have been feeling various kinds of heartbreak or shock have come together in love in, in a very deliberate, potent way. Um, is that something that you've also sort of gotten a glimmer of? I know that as an advice columnist, you mostly hear from people who are sad. So <laughs> you, 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 may not, you may not hear so much about the coping mechanisms. That's true. But at the same time, you know, I also, in addition to the advice column and writing on my own, I run this thing called Mindful, which is a really vibrant meditation community. And right. people come in and we actually had a situation. I, I couldn't believe it. You know, there's, what is it, 8 million people in New York City? And within a week, um, this one woman came in, and she was heartbroken because she was going through a breakup. And she bought an unlimited membership and started coming every day. And three days later, who walks in, gets an unlimited membership but her ex-boyfriend? <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> right? So it's, wow. it's, oh, people are starting to see that this meditation thing can help them with the strong emotions that they're going through. And also... There's an element here of like, I need a community that can support me. And that's also grappling with their suffering in its many forms. That's going to be helpful for me along the way. So people are looking for it, even though it's like now it's so many people that you can't even escape your ex from it. <laughs> so, so what happened? I, I don't, you know, if, if you can't say because of confidentiality or, or, or what have you, but I'm, you know, did they, did they run into each other? At a, they did. They were very civil and very nice to each other. I mean, it actually felt like, a probably a relatively good debrief if you had to see your, your partner regularly or your ex-partner regularly, that they would actually be in these little transient moments. I'm coming out of class. I got to run right now. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like five seconds of conversation, just being civil. But I ran into uh, the woman in the re- who, in, who was leaving the relationship just the other day uh, on the streets. And she was with someone who also was a mindful community member. I said, oh, I didn't know you guys knew each other. And she said, oh, no, I met her. 
while I was coming to Mindful, we've become like best friends. Oh. Yeah. So it's like even out of that, she came and she found people who she could relate to mm. who were going through similar things. And, you know, I see them one more, less and less because they, they've really established meditation practice on their own. But it's wonderful that they now have community to support them in this endeavor. So how do you go about translating um, these sort of age-old Buddhist ideas for a modern audience? Obviously, you have this sort of very, uh, dare, dare I say, hip approach. Uh, you, you know, you're you're talking about working in the office. You're talking about dealing with going home for the holidays. You're you're really aiming your works at um, you know younger people, professional age people. So how do you make that translation? Yeah, I mean, for me, going back to the very first book, The Buddha Walks Into a Bar, I realized it, it stemmed from this moment, actually, and I think about it. I was reading Pema Children's book, I think it was When Things Fall Apart, where she talks about in the very first chapter coming home and realizing that her marriage was falling apart and she had to get a divorce. And I was going through a breakup at that time. But I realized I had never gone through a divorce. That was completely different than what I had done. So... I was saying, who's done this? Who's done that like quarter life breakup, that your first big love? I couldn't find anyone. That really said, okay, I want to try and open up this conversation. And that's how that book was born. So I think, you know, for me, it's always, I, I used to be, I, after that first book came out, the Boston Phoenix called me the cool kids Buddhist, which I feel <laughs> like I don't, get to, I don't get to have that title anymore because it's like been six years. I'm in my mid 30s. You know, I was like, I suppose these things are relative, but, you know, I don't feel like, you know, I think it was, I was a kid maybe six years ago and now I'm like a teenager. Um, <laughs> but it's, I do think it's really important to just speak from my own perspective, which I don't think is not, I don't think it's alienating to anyone. In fact, I get emails from readers all the time who are in their 50s, 60s and assume that they are not the usual reader, but of course I hear from them all the time. Yeah. Um, I think the aspect of heartbreak is a universal thing, but the idea of being able to talk about this in very plain language, I mean, I can only represent my own voice, of course. And I joke that I have two things I can represent, really. One is <clears throat> the great wisdom of my teachers that I try to study and take in as much as I can. And then literally, if there's any mistake to be made in the spiritual journey, I've made it. And learn from it. And hopefully I can share that too. So that's sort of the two ways that I try to translate through those two lenses. And now as we're going into the holidays, um, what advice might you have? What what kinds of uh, questions are you getting right now, these particular holidays, the New Year's, Christmas, Hanukkah? Yeah, I mean, I bet it's not surprising. It's a lot of stuff around travel stress, family stress, mm -hmm. work parties. Um, social anxiety, mm -hmm. just sheer exhaustion. It feels like so many people are really working so hard and they're like, okay, but on the 23rd, I just collapse and then I don't have to talk to anyone. But, oh, wait, I have to go see my family and they're going to want to talk to me. <laughs> you know? So it's, it's a lot of that, that sort of like, okay, how do I deal with just the day-to-day -day stress of this particularly busy season? And also how do I deal with my family, um, and particularly in ways that don't feel healthy? So is there an alternative? And the great Tibetan Buddhist teacher Chogun Trungpa Rinpoche once said, um, everything is predetermined until now. And I love that idea. Like mm. the relationship we have with our family when we go home, it's totally predetermined based on us doing the same song and dance for however many decades. But in this very moment, we could do something completely different. 
And when we do, we open up the space for other people to do things differently too. So that's, I mean, it's really an interesting dance that we do. Um, can we actually shift the dynamic in our own homes, in our own families? Sometimes that doesn't always go so well. I mean, if you're going home to see the racist uncle and for 20 years you've said, yeah, okay, whatever, Uncle Chad, and this time you say, look, that's really not okay, you're, you're changing things, but um, the space you open up may be a very challenging one. A hundred percent. And I mean, it's, it's brave. <clears throat> you know, it's literally an act of bravery to say, no, 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 I'm not going to schlep through this. I'm actually going to wake up and I'm going to try and be of benefit. And that doesn't always just feel like saying the nice thing. It's actually sometimes much worse. It's actually like putting yourself out there in a vulnerable position. I was actually, someone wrote me the other day, having read an excerpt from Love Hurts and shared a story where she and her brother went 10 years without speaking to each other. And it was his decision and she didn't understand it. And he had said, I, you hurt me so badly. I can't have you in my life. She had no understanding what was going on. And once a year, she would reach out and just try and put herself out there. Hmm. trying to restore the relationship. And sometimes she would be ignored. Other times he would yell at her. And then literally in year 10, she reached out again and he, re he responded. And he said, actually, I've been diagnosed as being bipolar. And he was in the process of being treated. And he said he was pretty sure he'd done some horrible things to her, but he couldn't even remember what they were. And he was sorry. She was able to let it go. He was able to let it go. And she drove 10 hours that day just to see him. And they now have a relationship. Mm. So it's that aspect of just continuously showing up for that human being that really made a world of difference. So what's next on your plate? Um, another another residency? Something entirely different? You said you're opening up to more outposts of your meditation center? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think... Uh, Instead of the cool kids Buddhist, it should be like the masochist Buddhist uh, <laughs> because there's something a little masochistic about launching a book and two new studios. And we also like brought our um, meditation teachers online. So people who wanted to actually like connect to the experience here at Mindful, there's beautiful meditation videos online now too on our website. And um, it's just, it, yeah, I think right now it feels like a lot of expansion, putting this book out into the world. And now it's a period of stabilization, just really connecting with communities about this book, about this important topic, and then um, moving into the point of really making sure that people feel supported and that mindfuls and all of the various locations of New York City actually can accommodate them and help them hold their heart. We've been talking with Lodra Rinsler, and you can find his book, Love Hurts, in stores right now. Lodra, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another scintillating author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. 
You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 